Welcome to the Whole Life Healing Podcast with Dr. Alexander Lloyd, best-selling author and founder of the Revolutionary Healing Codes Technique. Each week, Dr. Alex shares principles and methods from psychology, energy medicine, natural medicine, and spirituality to help you reduce stress, heal emotional and physical issues, and remove the barriers that hold you back from happiness and success. Join us as we learn to live our happiest, healthiest, and most successful lives. Here's Dr. Alex. Hi, Dr. Alex here. If you like the show today or any day, I would love it if you took about 10 seconds to go to iTunes and leave a review for the show. I've been doing this for about 14 years now, and I spend hundreds of hours every year in preparation and recording the show. And if you like it, if it's worth your time, if you think it might benefit others, I would love it if you could leave a review to recommend to your friends or just recommend it to your friends that could benefit from listening to the show. Thank you so very much. Since we are going to be talking about issues of health and well-being, we wanted to make sure that you understand that this information is not intended to cure or heal anything. Everything in the presentations is the opinion of Alex Lloyd. You should always check with a licensed healthcare provider about any specific health concern you may have. This is a new thing. Um, so, whoo, little weird. I've been building to this for about, probably about 16, 17 years. Hi. I'm Dr. Alex Lloyd, and welcome to the New Jesus uh, Episode 1. I've been working toward this, praying about it, uh, a little nervous about it for about 16 years. Uh, This is the first day, the first teaching um, ever. And um, so if you want to know what that term, the New Jesus means to me and why I named this that, watch the instructional, the, the introductory video of what this is and where it came from. But I'm going to jump right in. Uh, I was brought up believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I remember the little country church that I grew up in and they had, uh, it was a little church that was probably 75 members and there was an auditorium that went this way, and then classrooms that went this way, and the adults went to the classrooms this way, the kids went to the classrooms this way. So I'd go over here, and uh, it seems like every single grade, when I first went in, up to about age 10, the teacher, which was often a woman, did a flannel graph board. Okay, you remember those? Uh, Some of you aren't old enough to remember that. But it's a big board, and you have pieces of different colored flannel cut out to look like certain things, and you put them on the flannel, and it sticks. Okay? And 
the the when we would first go into the class, you know, you're starting a new class probably because you're starting a new school grade. Here's the flannel board and the female teacher who's just a mother, a member of the church out there, and there's a, a mountain, okay, a big green mountain on the uh, flannel board. And then the teacher puts a flannel of Jesus, you know, who is uh, white-faced, of course, um, long hair, uh, robes, and hands out like this. I'll never forget it, okay? And so she puts the flannel thing of Jesus at the top of the mountain, and she's going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given, and... Uh, according to that teacher, what tells us about Jesus and both about me and us and what God expects of me uh, in order to be right with Him and saved and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So I hope you can see that. And there would be little uh, flannel cutouts of sheep and goats and maybe a lamb or two. And there would be, and then they would put a flannel that had some people and children down here, and that would be the scene. I, I probably should have uh, actually found a flannel board and done that. They're, they're not that easy to find these days. But anyway, I hope you can see that in your mind's eye. And then the teacher would start to teach us about the Sermon on the Mount, and that uh, that was what we needed to know and what we needed to do in our life in order to be right with Jesus and God and be saved so that we would not go to hell but go to heaven. Okay? So maybe you can imagine a six-year-old little boy <clears throat> sitting there hearing this, a seven-year-old boy, a nine-year-old boy, a ten-year-old boy. They did it every grade <clears throat> sitting there watching that. Excuse me. Let me get a drink of water. <clears throat> and then the teacher would start in. <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, <clears throat> and, and every one of these is blessed in the King James Version and several other versions, but what the word really means is happy. Okay? Uh, that's the closest English word to it, is happy, not blessed, okay? And so Jesus said, happy are the poor in spirit, which is basically humble, because they will receive the kingdom of God, all right? Had no idea at that time what the kingdom of God was, but it sounded good, okay? <clears throat> happy are those that mourn. For they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, which is kind of like humble. For they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And this was a big one. And the teacher would explain that righteousness means doing what's right instead of doing what's wrong. Okay? So if you tell a lie, you're not righteous. What does that mean? It means you're going to hell. Okay. Uh, maybe not for one lie, but that was always kind of ambiguous. Well, how many lies can you tell and, and, and still not go to hell? Well, they wouldn't answer that question. They would just say, 
hey, you have, to, you have to be sinless to go to heaven. You have to have no sin to go to heaven. So if you tell a lie, you need to immediately uh, repent and confess and pray and ask for forgiveness and then never do it again because lying will cause you to go to hell. So righteous means doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. Well, this one, based on this one alone, I was toast. Because my nickname was Dennis the Menace. Now, some of you are, are too young to remember that. But basically, it means a little kid who's always getting into trouble, who's always stepping over the line, who's always doing some stuff he shouldn't be doing. Wrong stuff instead of right stuff. All right? So, every time they taught about this one, this, this means doing all the things right and none of the things wrong. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm toast, alright? Uh, blessed are the merciful. I was pretty good at that. I forgave pretty easy. They'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. And they describe the pure in heart as being very much like the righteous. Okay? You don't uh, think about negative or sinful things. You think about uh, positive uh, good things. All right, but man, I thought about negative things all the time. I thought about lying and stealing, and once I got old enough, thought had lustful thoughts about girls all the time. So this was another one that was very problematic to me. Blessed are the peacemakers. I was good at that. I for, I forgave people easily. I liked people. People tend, tended to like me, so that one was okay. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. You'll, and you'll receive the kingdom of God. Well, I was persecuted some for being short and fat and made fun of for things like that, okay? So that one, I thought, might get me some points, okay? But you got to remember, this is Jesus talking. So every bit of this is non-negotiable. This is like from God himself, okay? Uh, and then Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5. Um you are the light of the world. So that means everyone will see your good deeds. Well, I didn't have any good deeds, at least that I could think of. I had a whole bunch of bad deeds. So that meant that I was dark instead of light and in big trouble again. All right? Jesus said, oh, this was, this was horrible. Then Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and not a single letter of the law would be taken away. But he came to fulfill it. Well, what, excuse me, this is, this is that law. This is the Hebrew old law, okay? There are 613 laws, 613 commandments, okay? All kinds of stuff from what you eat to how you wash your hands to not touching certain things to your clothing and what you wear and, and, you, and, and you have certain things you have to wear on your clothes, other things you can't wear on your clothes, uh, when you go to bed, when you pray, how you eat, uh, how you treat other people. I mean, it is, it is endless. This is 34 pages single-spaced of the laws. And so Jesus is saying he came to fulfill the law and not a single letter. You know how many letters are in here? In 34 pages single-spaced of laws? 
There's thousands and thousands of letters. So what I was taught is that Jesus is here to not take a single letter away. All of these laws are still in force. And if you violate them, you're in big trouble. Okay? So that one was maybe the worst one for me. Uh, anyone who breaks the least of those laws. That's the, that's the next thing from Matthew 5. Anyone who breaks the least of these is in big trouble. Then he goes into, you've heard that it's wrong to murder. That it's a sin to murder. But then Jesus starts going even further than this. And he says, but I'm here to tell you, if you even become angry with another person, you are subject to the judgment. In other words, if you become angry with someone, it can be the equivalent of, of you having murdered them under, under the old law up until now. So now, anger could have the same punishment as murder. And back then, I had a big anger problem. So... Man, I started thinking about all the times I'd gotten angry with my mom and my dad and my friends and myself and in ball games and things like that. And, and so every one of those potentially could be murder, 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 murder. All right? Jesus said, um, it's a, you, you have heard it's a sin to commit adultery, to have sex with someone you're not married to. I'm telling you, if you lust in your heart, you're guilty. Well, from probably six years old until my the middle of my 20s, this was, this was like several times every day, okay? And, and most of the other men I know have had that same experience. So, so I, I was guilty multiple times a day from this one alone, every single day of my life with no exception. At the time I was being taught this, okay? Um, Jesus goes on to say, if your eye causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut them off. Because it would be better to go through life without an eye or a hand than to go to hell. Alright? Well, so that had me seriously thinking, should I cut out an eye? Should I cut off a hand? Because I'm, I'm in big trouble here. He says, you, Jesus goes on, you've heard it said you have to give a woman a writing of divorcement, which was pretty common then and could be done for a lot of reasons. He says, I'm telling you that you can only do it for one reason, and that's adultery. Anything else, and again, you're subject to the judgment, sinful, in danger of hell. And... In the past was, you know, an eye for an eye. Now now Jesus is saying, love your enemies. And so I started thinking about all the kids who'd made fun of me and things like that. And I'm supposed to love them. And so I try to, but I just can't. I can't love them. When every day they're calling me fatso and chunky. And so, and then the end of it is the coup de grace. The end of it is the gigantic 500-pound cherry on top as far as me being toast. Jesus says, at the end of all of this, the last command he gives in that passage, be perfect. 
be perfect. Okay? And, and so the Sunday school teacher, that's where she ends. So to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. Now, none of us are perfect, and you can be forgiven of your sins, but you have to try as hard as you can every single day. And if you make a little mistake here or there, you know, maybe God will overlook that. I remember my dad, who died at 87 years old, was terrified of death. Even though he had been faithful to this uh, strict religious church all his life. You know why he was terrified? He was afraid that he would have a stray, sinful thought the instant before he died and not have time to repent, confess, and pray for forgiveness because he died right after he had that thought and he believed that because of that, he would go to hell. And it was so heartbreaking to see my dad the last probably two years of his life absolutely living, not in fear, in terror because he believed there was a good chance after an entire lifetime of doing his best to be faithful that he would still end up in hell by something that largely was beyond his control. And that is how I was brought up and what I was taught. Um, and if you can just imagine the five-year-old Alex, six years, seven, eight, nine, ten, at getting this same lesson every year, the same flannel, uh, flannel graph, all the same thing, and knowing I might as well give up because I've tried as hard as I can on these things. I really have, and I can't do it right. So, in parts of my life, it had me wanting to just give up. Well, that is the Jesus that I grew up being taught about. And then when I was 27, 28, um, a lovely man, uh, when everything in my life was sliding into the ditch, loved me to death. That's all he did. He loved me. And he, he started teaching me what, what this message really says, what it doesn't, taking things in context of the whole rather than pulling one thing out of context and looking at it to its exclusion, but not holistically, looking at what does the Greek and Hebrew really say in context instead of many times the mistranslation because it was under the direction of the Catholic Church who said, you're going to do Christianity our way or we're going to put you in jail or torture you or kill you. And that went on for hundreds of years. No one knows how many people. But that's the environment that the first translations came out of and the system, not the Jerusalem Church, but the Rome Catholic 
church with all of their symbols and rules and uh, all of that. So, what, who, who is the new Jesus that I was introduced to in my mid-twenties and how did that vary from this Jesus? <clears throat> well, it was the difference in night and day. It was the difference in peace and anxiety and fear. The difference in joy and sadness and hopelessness and helplessness. The difference in love and selfishness. The difference in everything in my life. John 1 says that through Moses came the law. This and the 613 laws that I threw on the floor over there. Through Moses came the law. Through Jesus came grace and truth. Well, we haven't addressed grace and truth here. Maybe some truth, but not grace. Right. Because we haven't looked at the whole. You have to look at the whole, not part. So, the new Jesus, the Jesus that now I love and have intimate, loving, personal relationship with, is so different from this Jesus. Remember, when Jesus taught this, at the time the Sermon on the Mount happened, they were still under the old law, not the new law. Okay? So, that was still in force at that time. And, 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 but it's more than that. Everything Jesus said here was true. But he left one thing out that would come later. It wasn't time for it yet because the new law hadn't come yet. All right? So what was left out? The mystery of the ages is that Jesus and I are one. I am, see I am seated with him in the heavenlies. He is in me here and now. We are one. Um, Romans 7 says that if I have given my life to God, if I am committed to Jesus and sin, and sin again, and sin over and over and over again, every single day, Paul says in Romans 7, it is not me that is sinning in God's eyes and God's book, and that sin is never written under my name. The way Paul puts it, when I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do, it's not me doing it. It's sin living in me. And that is where Jesus, that's where God attaches the guilt, the shame, the blame. All right? Not to me. But the other part of that is that when Jesus did die on the cross, he took to the cross every one of my sins. Literally, in his mind and body, he took them to the cross and he paid for them. 
as if he were guilty. The picture is, uh, I've got a blindfold on and I'm standing up here in front of the firing squad because I've not been pure in heart. I've not done what's right, but I've done what's wrong. Uh, I did not do all the good deeds I should have done. I did become angry, so was guilty of murder. I did lust, so was guilty of adultery. I was nowhere close to perfect, so I'm lined up here with the blindfold and the firing squad about to say, ready, aim, fire, and then I'm dead. And I deserve that because I'm the one that broke the law. I'm the one that did the wrong, right? But before they can shoot... Jesus walks in, hugs me, tells me how much he loves me, says, hand me the blindfold. So I take it off, hand Jesus the blindfold. Jesus puts the blindfold on himself, tells me to go and be happy and live a wonderful life. And he stands there and says, okay, I'm ready. I'm here to pay for Alex's sins, all of them. Alex's violations of the law, all of them. So, ready, aim, fire. So when Jesus shared all of this, yes, it was, it was true, every bit of it. But there was another truth that was to come shortly that I was never intended to be the one to do this. Jesus was. So all these things that Jesus was saying have to happen. You literally have to be perfect. He knew all along, and God knew all along, that as hard as I tried, I could not do it. And so before any of this ever started, before God ever made the zebra or Adam and Eve or rocks or trees or anything else, the plan was already in place that this would not be for me to accomplish. This would be for Jesus to come and accomplish and do for me. Jesus was asked um, by people that were very legalistic, kind of like the way I grew up, who were trying to trap him, trying to trick him. Uh, is there a greatest commandment? Here's these 613 commandments about everything, about life and food and diet and clothes and everything else. Is there a greatest commandment? And a lot of times Jesus wouldn't answer those questions. He, he, would, he would give them an answer they weren't expecting, like, uh, let him who's without sin cast the first stone, or, or something like that. But about this one, he not only answers, he goes further than their question. And he says, yes, there is a greatest commandment. It's love. And the second one is love too. And if you do that, if you love you have kept the entire law. The entire law is summed up in love. So if you love, you have kept the entire law. And that there is no law against 
love. Paul said, We are saved by grace, not of works, lest men should boast. Hey, I'm better than you because I, I did it this way. Hey, I'm better than him because he did that and I didn't do that. No, no, no. That's all out the window. None of us are saved because the benchmark is perfect. All of us are saved by grace. For all of us, not just for me, for you, God has paid, Jesus has paid for every sin you have ever committed in the past, everyone you'll commit today, and everyone that you'll commit in the future. He paid for it. Okay? Well, if you buy a hammer at the hardware store, who owns it? It's whoever paid for it. Okay? Well, if you paid for it and have a receipt for it, does it have to be paid for a second time? No. Nothing has to be paid for a second time. You pay for it once, it's bought and purchased, and it belongs to the person who paid for it. So, everyone of my sins, every one of my mess-ups, every one of my not measuring up, every one of them, including the one I'll do tomorrow, 10 days from now, 30 years from now, has already been paid for before I ever do it. That's the new Jesus. He loved me so much. He loves me so much that he came to take my place in front of the firing squad. He came to take my place in hell, whatever hell is, and pay my price. Not, not, not partial, 100%, my whole price any price that would ever be owed based on my life and my sin that doesn't measure up. Paul was trying to explain this grace to believers in the New Testament, and you can just see they can't wrap their head around it. And, and it's like, wait a minute, if what you're saying is true, then we could just sin more on purpose, and it would still be forgiven. Paul's answer, basically, yeah, you could. But if you do that, you don't really understand what the love of God is. You don't really understand who this person of Jesus is. Because if Jesus did come and take my place in front of that firing squad, the rest of my life, I would tell everybody I knew, I would dedicate my life to the honor, the sacrifice, the love that this person had for me. I would not have the life I have with my children or my wife or anything else if this guy had not paid my price for me that I couldn't pay for myself. And that's the new Jesus.
Yeah, all of this is true. But he's the one that's going to do it right and be perfect, not me. Pretty big detail to, live, to, to leave out to a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, etc. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Um, wanted to read uh, from Scripture who I am. Okay, this, this paints one picture of who I am, right? That I've got a problem doing things wrong instead of right. I don't have a pure heart. I have a heart full of a bunch of junk. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of adultery. I'm guilty of all kinds of sins because I think I'm in my heart a lot of times even if I don't do them, and some of them I do, and be perfect, forget it. But if we look at the whole, and if we look at the actual language and context, not just pulling things out, here's what we also find. John 15, verse 9. I am completely loved. John 15, verses 15 and 16. I am accepted. One of the biggest issues in life is rejection. I've never met anyone who didn't have a rejection issue, and usually a bunch of them. You're accepted completely, just as you are. Romans 8.31, I am righteous. Look at there. I am righteous. But not because I did it right. Because He did it for me. 2 Corinthians 2.14, I am adequate. I am enough. Romans 8, I am victorious. Who, who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul said. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who always leads us in victory. Because it's not about my strength, it's about His. Psalm 4, verses 8, and 1 John 4, 18. I am free from fear. Predominantly, you either live in love or fear. If I believe the truth, if I'm right with God, if I have relationship with Jesus Christ, and if I understand the way this, what this really says versus this skewed, twisted version that I was taught growing up, then I'm free from fear. Psalm 4, verses 8. 1 Peter 5, verses 7. I am content. Man, how many times would you just like to feel content, at peace? Acts 1, 8. I am strong. I have wisdom. I am free. I have been adopted by God, and I am His child. I am totally, completely forgiven. I have the joy of the Lord. 
I've been chosen and set apart as being special by God. I have all the hope I need for this life. How about this one? John 3.18 and Romans 8.1 I am blameless. What does that mean? It means I am perfect. I am blameless. Romans 8.39 I am never alone. Ephesians 2.18, I have access to God Himself, Yahweh, the Alpha and the Omega, any time. Wow. Try to get access to the President of the United States, who's... <laughs> I don't know if, I've, if I would even want that. Most days not. I have access to God any time. Never alone. Colossians 1.13 and Revelation 12. I have authority over evil and Satan. Power in me. Because Jesus and I are one, the mystery of the ages. And Proverbs 3.26 and 1 John 5.14. I have all the confidence for a radically successful life. All of that. Right here, if you look at it holistically, according to the original language and context. Okay? So, yes, this was true but it stopped short of the whole truth. And the whole truth was this was never intended as something I had to do. Before I was ever born, it was intended that it would be done for me. So, what does that mean? I'd like to try to sum this up. And by the way, I know this segment has been long, but it's because it's the first one. I believe the next ones, at least hopefully, will be much shorter, 10-15 minutes. Because I plan to just hit like one thing with each teaching. But here's sort of the culmination to me. Um, I have a good friend named Todd, and uh, Todd was telling me a story about his own life one time that for a couple of years, he was called to be a street preacher in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Todd had been an intern under me at one of my full-time ministry positions. And after that, he was called to be a street preacher. Not the kind of street preacher that preaches uh, like, uh, you know, fire and brimstone, you're going to hell. No, 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 no. The the other kind that just loves you to death, okay? And uh, he told me that one of his favorite things to do was to go into the bar and talk to the prostitutes. And when he first said that, he kind of caught me off guard. Wow! Preaching, going to the bar, and talking to the prostitutes. But then I realized that's what Jesus did. In fact, they ridiculed Jesus. The religious people ridiculed Jesus all the time because he hung out with the sinners all the time. All right? So anyway, 
Todd's favorite things to go have a beer in a bar and talk to a prostitute. And here's what he would say to the prostitute. After they got to know each other a little bit, Todd would ask them a question. Did you know that there will not be one person in hell because of sin? Did you know that? And uh, Todd told me that they would go through a predictable series of reactions to that. The first one is, this guy's messing with me. He knows I'm a prostitute, and he's like poking me with a stick, and they would become angry. Then he would convince them that that was not the case. He, he was not poking them with a stick. Sometimes that would take a few minutes. Sometimes it would take weeks or months and a lot more beers. Um, but he would convince them that, no, 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 I, I'm not ridiculing you. I'm not having fun with you. The second phase they would tend to go through after they weren't angry at him anymore is... That cannot be true. No way that's true. This guy's just wrong. Doesn't even make sense. I mean, the laws of our cities don't even work like that. You break the law, you go to jail. You break the law, you go to prison. You break the law, you get the electric chair. You break the law, you pay a fine. But you break the law and something bad happens, okay? Doesn't make any sense that I would be doing something bad and sinful over and over and over for years and I will not go to hell for that. Doesn't make sense, all right? So the second stage was that just can't be true. Todd would keep talking to him. Sometimes, again, took months. And stage three was... Oh my goodness. You mean there's still hope for me? You mean my life isn't over? I, I, I don't have the scarlet letter where I can never be clean again. I can never be wanted again. I could never be thought of as a good person again. You mean there's a chance still for me? And um, one by one, Todd would walk with them out of that life and start a new life, a healthy life, a positive life um, with joy and peace and happiness and, and things like that. Um, oh, oh, let me not leave this out. Typically, before... After the three stages, but before they had committed to change anything, they would ask Todd a question. And the question was, okay, but wait a minute. This all sounds terrific, but um, I've got a daughter or I've got a son. And, and the only way I can put food on the table right now and take care of us is by continuing to be a prostitute at least for a while. Are you saying that if I change my life, I'll have to quit doing that? Um, 
because I can't right now because of my daughter or son or whatever. You may be surprised at Todd's answer. No, you don't have to stop doing that. At least not now. God loves you just the way you are. Well, I was the prostitute. You were the prostitute. All of us are, have sinned and fallen short. All right? None of us, excuse me, none of us have kept these 37 pages, 613 laws. None of us have never been angry in our heart, which means we, we're guilty of murder. None of us have, are without lust, which means we're guilty of adultery. None of us are completely righteous. We all have done wrong. None of us are pure in heart completely. All of us have negative spots. And remember what the standard is. It's not that, yeah, but I've done it really good. I've done it way better than most people. Doesn't matter. Look what the standard is. The standard's perfect. The answer to Todd's question, I mean statement, Whatever hell is, the only people who will be in hell are people who are not willing to accept the free gift of God's love and Jesus' love. That's it. Won't be one person in hell because of sin because the new covenant, the new law that Jesus ushered in, he, he said, I came to fulfill the law. The new law is grace and love. So, that's what he invites me to. That's what he invites you to. It's open to everyone. The New Testament says, in Jesus, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, black or white. I mean, you can put anything in there. It includes all of us, is the bottom line. It includes you. And God and Jesus have paid for your sins already, just like they have mine. Even if you have not committed to receive and accept His love yet. You can be free of all of this just as I am. You can have a relationship with the new Jesus. And I promise you, your life will never be the same. As Paul said, thanks be to our God, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who always leads us in victory. And then these things will be true about you too. I am loved. I am accepted. I am protected. I have, I am content. I'm free from fear. I'm victorious. I'm blameless. I'm never alone. I have access to God. 
etc., etc., etc. And it's free. Uh, you, it doesn't mean you have to go start going to church, okay? Um, there's not one place in the New Testament that says go to church, okay? Um, I believe I am free. I can go to church, yeah, but that's not a have to. The, the scriptures that have been quoted to make that a have-to and a mortal sin if you don't go are this, which I was never intended to live up to anyway. Or they're talking about something completely different. It's not even talking about going to church. All right? But what is required is to accept the love of God. Accept Jesus who came and took your place on the firing squad just as he did mine, as your friend, Lord, and Savior. One thing that was so fascinating to me about this is that the teachers would always say how Jesus was my best friend when they taught me the flannel graph thing. But you know what? After they were done explaining this, and I realized these areas that I had tried so many times and still couldn't do right, and so I was guilty of all this stuff, and the bottom line was be perfect, and I was as far from perfect as anybody I knew. You know what? That didn't sound like a very good friend to me. That didn't sound like a friend I wanted as a friend. Okay? But the new Jesus loves me and loves you exactly the way you are, warts, sins, and all. Doesn't matter what you've done or not done. Does not matter. Not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And you are made perfect because Jesus does it for you. So, will you accept the free gift of God's love today. Will you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today? If you do, that's it. That's all you have to do. And then, and then commit to do the best you can to live in love and to pray and to... Uh, and all prayer means is have relationship. It's like talking on the phone or texting, okay? I, I, I'm going to keep in communication, all right? No no going to church with a tie if you don't want to or sitting there with it being boring for an hour or two hours or whatever. You know what? You know an interesting thing through the COVID uh, pandemic? I probably talked to 50 or 60 people who've gone to church all their life and all but two of them have told me, you know what, I kind of hate to say this, but it has been so nice <laughs> to not have to go to church. Isn't that amazing? Well, I don't believe it's because church is fouled up or not right. I believe it's because we've messed church up. It was never intended to be what we've made it to be. So, 
I hope some of this makes sense. I hope it's a blessing to you. I hope and pray that you will accept the love of God today and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. And I hope you'll join me again as we maybe walk down the road together with the new Jesus who loves you more than anyone ever has or will and has paid your price for every wrong you have ever done or ever will do. You, there will not be one person in hell because of sin. That's been taken care of. The only people that will be there are the people who refuse to accept the free gift of the love of God. Will you accept it today? Okay, so let's kind of sum up uh, where we are and, and sort of considering all of this, what does it mean? Well, it's Jesus' coming out party most famous sermon of all time, uh, and Jesus is saying why he's here and establishing the foundation of his ministry and, and paving the way for what is to come, which is the new covenant. But you got to always remember, why, when Jesus preached this sermon, it was not the new covenant yet. It was the old covenant. So summing up, at least for me, the way I look at this is Jesus steps on the scene and says, you'll be happy if you're righteous, which means you do things right. How, what percentage of things? How many things? A hundred percent of things. <laughs> because be perfect, right? That's the end of it. Be perfect. Okay, so you're happy if you're righteous. So Alex looking at that at 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, and even at 20 and 25 is, oh yeah, Jesus, here comes Jesus, the Son of God, who's going to be my best friend. And here's the great news he gives me uh, that is going to make me feel toward him like a best friend. Alex, you'll be happy if you do everything right and nothing wrong. And also, yeah, you know it's wrong to murder, but I'm telling you that if you get angry, you're guilty of murder. If you do it in your heart, even if you never do it... And, and, and at the time, I've got this anger issue, but it really doesn't matter what your issue is, because what he's saying is if you do any of these sins in your heart... You're guilty of them just like you did it. And you know what? Our bodies are made that way. Our unconscious mind doesn't differentiate between past, present, or future. It doesn't differentiate between whether it really happened or not. It treats everything we imagine or think about as if it is happening right now. So this is not just Jesus saying it. This is how we're built, okay? Uh, and the biggest one for me, uh, of course, adultery is this big bad sin, but if you, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, have lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Oh my goodness. Which, of course, during those adolescent teen years was just off the chart, and every friend I knew felt the same way. So in essence, Jesus is saying, yeah, I'll be your friend if... 
if you do everything right, nothing wrong, never get angry, never lust, never think anything negative in your heart, and, 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 and what you got to know is a lot of this stuff, I wasn't trying to feel angry. I couldn't help it. I wasn't trying to lust. I couldn't help it. So now I'm going to be guilty of some sin that I didn't do in reality and I couldn't help the internal feeling, but I'm guilty of it anyway. And the bottom line is every is from Jesus, yeah, we're cool as long as you're perfect. <laughs> wow. Doesn't sound like a great friend, right? And it, and it didn't to me when I was taught that at 5 and 10 and 20 and 25. And if I heard it again today and believed that this is the way it is, I would still feel that way today. But that is not the situation. Okay? Again, you've got to take the whole of Scripture, not just pull one thing out of context, and you have to take the, the meaning in the original language, and many, many of these passages are mistranslated because the king or queen or inquisitor or whoever it was related to the Catholic Church would put someone in jail if they interpreted it in a way that was not consistent with the Catholic Church and and all their rules and regulations. Okay, So you've got to consider all of that. But I do believe if we look at the original and look at it in context and look at it as a whole, the truth emerges. A critical scripture to me, Romans 5.20, says an unbelievable thing. It says that the old law that was the law that was in force when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. The old law was given so that sin would increase. <laughs> That's unbelievable. The purpose of the old law was to cause sin to increase. To cause more murder, more adultery, more anger, more lust. Way, way opposite of anything close to perfect. Why in the world would God do that? Give something that is given for the purpose of making it worse. I believe it was because we never would have believed grace if we hadn't tried seek pleasure, avoid pain, action, reaction, reap what you sow, karma, uh, law of attraction, Newton's three laws of motion, the way everything on planet Earth works. We, we, we would not have been able, I don't believe, to get our head around grace, and it's hard to get your head around it anyway, we would have thought it should have worked this way. If you do something good, you get good. If you do something bad, you get bad. Because it's, the, it's natural law and it's the way everything works in natural law. And it's the way we think. Okay? And it's what makes sense. That's the way it should be. If you do something good, you should get something good. If you do something bad, there should be a consequence. 
Okay? That's how little kids learn, right? That they put their hand on the stove and they'll never do it again, right? But, but if there wasn't a consequence, they'd keep doing it over and over and over. So, God starts, in a way, the old law with plan B, not plan A. God knew all along what plan A was. God knew all along the one that would work. God knew all along where we were headed. And where we were headed was not for me to have to do it right, for me to never get angry, for me to never lust, for me to be perfect. God never intended that. Jesus never intended that. The intention is that God and Jesus would do it for me. That Jesus would come down, pay the price, before I'm, when I'm before the firing squad, Jesus walks in, says, give me the blindfold, you go live a great life, I will take your punishment. And that is always what was intended. The old law was just for us to learn that no matter how hard we try, none of us can do it right. None of us can do it well enough. Because well enough is perfect. So, I can be happy because Jesus makes me righteous or right. I'm not guilty of murder because Jesus paid for my anger. I'm not guilty of adultery because Jesus paid for my lust. And he pays for every single one of them, all of them in the past, everyone I do today, everyone for the rest of my life is already paid for before I ever do it. And Paul says, when I do what I don't want to do, don't do what I do want to do, in God's eyes and book, it's not me doing it. So that anger is never written under my name. That lust or adultery or whatever it is, lying, stealing, is never written under my name. And, and the gavel comes down and I am declared not forgiven. I'm declared innocent and perfect. Um, and... I'm declared all these other things, which I read a few minutes ago. So how could, how could it say that I'm very much loved if I'm a murderer? How could it say that I'm accepted, that I'm righteous, that I'm victorious, that I'm free, I'm content, I'm strong, uh, I've been adopted by God and am His child... I'm totally forgiven. I have the joy of the Lord. I've been chosen and am special. I have hope. I'm blameless. Listen to just that one. I am blameless. What does that mean? It means perfect. I'm never alone. I have access to God anytime. I have authority and I have all the confidence in I need, that I need to do anything and everything. So these 613 
laws and regulations, which Jesus says here, he didn't come to take away. He came to fulfill. But I'm not the one that has to get it right. Jesus does it for me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is grace. And even today, even though I've been teaching these things now for well over 25 years, it is still very difficult for me to get my head wrapped around grace. Um, I, I tell a lie. But in God's eyes, I did not tell a lie. And I'm declared innocent of telling a lie. Well, wait a minute. That didn't make sense. I remember telling the lie. But in God's eyes and in God's book, because Jesus took the firing squad for me, and not just for my big thing, for everything, my whole life, every day, and all of them in the future, they've already been paid for. And whoever pays for them and holds the receipt for having paid for it, like the hammer in the hardware store, that's who the sin belongs to. So I'm declared innocent because the sin doesn't belong to me. Jesus paid for it, and because he paid for it, he has the receipt for it, and he owns it, not me. It is a remarkable, unthinkable um, truth. But it is the truth. And if you, do, if you aren't living in that truth where you are perfect, you are made perfect, not because you're perfect, it's done for you and to you. All you do, like, like the prostitutes that Todd used to go talk with, is accept the free gift of God's love. And it's not contingent on anything else. That's it. If you'll do that, everything else has been paid for. And the gift is forgiveness. The gift is grace. The gift is Jesus. The gift is the best possible life you could have with love, joy, and peace instead of fear, anxiety, worry, anger, low self-worth, etc. It's better health. It's everything you can name. Scripture says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. How? Because everything has been paid for now. And so I can just relax, enjoy it, do the best I can every day, but even when I mess up, it's already taken care of. Well, when, I, when this kind of sunk in with me in my mid-twenties, and I went through that six months of night terrors and everything, and that was over, I tell you what, I honestly felt I could never have a better friend than Jesus who would do all of this for me. 
where growing up, up to my mid-twenties, believing I had to do this myself, it's like, yeah, that's... <laughs> I wouldn't exactly say that that's my favorite friend there. Um, Who makes my life hard and I feel all this guilt and shame all the time and no. He's taken all that away by paying for it himself because he loved me so much. And that Jesus is not off in heaven somewhere doing his own thing. That Jesus and me are one. I am seated with him in heaven. He is here inside of me right now. We are one, and Scripture calls it the mystery of the ages, Christ in you. So he's my best friend. He is always with me, leading, guiding, comforting, counseling, loving, and paying the price for me every single time. So... um, What I was taught growing up about how he was my best friend never made sense. But this Jesus, yeah, my best friend. No one else has ever, could ever, or would ever do this for anyone that they did not dearly love and care about. This shows how much God and Jesus love me. And when I really understand that, I automatically, I don't have to try to, I love him back. All right. The new Jesus. I hope you know him. If you don't, um, I would love for you to meet him because I believe you will love him too, because I know he loves you. Have a wonderful, blessed day.